0: Let me kind of build a little bit on what John was sharing with us there in prayer and leading us into prayer as far as, and of course, our hearts and prayers have been with uh, the folks there in the panhandle, specifically Mexico Beach and those immediate areas that have been um, devastated beyond, I think, comprehension, at least for me. I I said to... uh, Tony, when we were talking about this week, I said reminds me of the pictures that we saw in 1992 when Andrew hit the the South. And um, certainly, we, we surround those who are who are um, have lost everything um, with our prayers. But we also want to be mindful of how can we help. And so, want to let you know a couple couple calls for, for help that are going out. Some ways that, that you can help out if you feel led. Obviously, right now, the the greatest need is is financial support, material needs, uh, because it's not an area a lot of people can rush into right now. Obviously, they're still um, recovering and and still searching for people they haven't heard from. But there's a couple things that we can do. I I mentioned to you that on October 27th is the CHARGE conference uh, at Christ Church in Venice. Um, At all the CHARGE conferences, these um, cluster conferences we're having, they're taking up special collections for the relief efforts through United Methodist Committee on Relief. Those of you that are have been with us hear me talk about this every year. Um, The United Methodist Committee on Relief is the relief agency through our denomination, through our, our joined and shared ministry, one of the absolute best around, bar none, and every dollar that they collect, every dollar that anyone gives goes to relief efforts. Overhead costs are covered from other denominational resources. It's one of the gifts that we have. So every dollar you give goes to relief efforts. One of the things they're asking for at that time are gift cards to Lowe's and Home Depot. Doesn't matter which, but gift cards to Lowe's and Home Depot, if you would like to get gift cards, whether you can go or not, that's what we're going to do. Um, and because you, you know you can buy gift cards here, you could get some this morning if you wanted to, but you can buy them anywhere, it doesn't matter where you get them. If you um, bring gift cards to the church, if you put gift cards for Lowe's or Home Depot in the offering plate, we're going to know what that is for, you don't even have to, to label it, we know what you're giving that for, we're going to collect all of those, and on that day, those of us who are going to the charge conference, I will take them down, and we will contribute that to the, to the larger offering, so you can do that. Um, the other thing that you can do is any check that you give, if you want to give through the church, if you mark your check, you make it out to the church, but if you mark it for the United Methodist Committee on Relief, UNCOR, U-M-C-O-R, if you have that on there, we will collect and we will send that to the to the Committee on Relief. So those are two ways that we can financially support right now um, through through our resources and being mindful of what our, what our brothers and sisters are going through. So I want you to be aware of that. We are praying for them, as John shared very powerfully. Um, we know a number of churches that had their walls knocked down that are worshiping right now they're worshiping in the heat um, in in whatever the conditions may be in the Panhandle today they've they've decided that their worship is not going to be defined by their walls but by by that spirit of Christ uniting them together so we're mindful and certainly lifting them up and we'll do and we'll continue to make you aware as as you know these we're still doing we're still supporting rebuilding efforts in South Florida from last year's hurricane. So we know what the panhandle has gone through and what Carolina has gone through is going to be a long-term project and we'll continue to keep, keep you up to date on ways that we can help out. So I want you to, uh, to be aware of that as you always are. You are so generous and, and I thank you for that. All right, we're going to turn now, kind of make a, a quick right, and we're going to get ready to, to get into our, our scripture this morning. We're going to get there in a few minutes like we normally do, but it is Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bibles and want to get ahead of me, it'll certainly be on the screens in front of you. As We're going to look at this, this, um, this story, this encounter that Jesus has with, with this young man called the, uh, the Rich Young Ruler. I was thinking about it, though, and, and, and the significance of the story and, and how that sometimes so often in life, the things that we remember or the things that get attention are memorable or attention-getting or, or noteworthy because something very unexpected happens. Sometimes things that are very ordinary become extraordinary because something that just wasn't expected happens. We got an example of that this week in, in the news, in in. Pop culture, if you will, and, and maybe you saw this in the news this week. But there was a, a painting or a, a canvas work that became very, very famous this week. It's called Girl with Balloon. In fact, I think I have a picture of it. Dave, can you put that out? That, that picture. How many of you saw that in the news this week? All right, so about maybe not even half of you know. How many of you have no idea why this is significant? It's okay, it's all right if you don't. This This painting. Um, is done by an artist I'd never heard of before, and certainly I'm not up on contemporary art or artists, but, but an anonymous artist by the name of Banksy. Interesting backstory that I don't have time to go into. I just read about it and probably don't fully get it. But, but he's kind of a unique personality. But so this artwork, this canvas art, he does this painting in a lot of places, but it was done in 2006 and was given, I think was donated to a friend or somebody that he knew, And uh, it went on the auction block this week. Sotheby's um, auctioned it off with a bunch of other pieces. And it sold for 1 million pounds, which is $1.4 million in in a conversion. Now, it's nice. I don't get what makes that $1.4 million nice, but it is. That in and of itself is not why it's noteworthy. Because pieces of art go for extraordinary dollars all the time. But it's what happened after it sold that made this noteworthy. If you didn't see, in the bottom of this frame, the artist, Banksy, had built something that nobody expected. It was a pretty thick frame. I can't believe nobody kind of picked up that it was really heavy. But as soon as it sold, this happened. Go to the next picture, if you would, Dave. The painting started to slide down and built in. If you can't see this very well, I understand. But built in the bottom of the frame is a paper shredder. And it started to shred the painting after it had sold for $1.4 million, and it stopped right there, that's what it looks like today, half the painting got shredded. Now, interestingly enough, the purchaser has chosen to keep the painting because they think now it's going to be even more valuable than it was before (laughs) because of this kind of a story. But it was, it was on the news. I think I saw it on one of the morning shows. But, but what really jumped out at me is, is not the quirkiness of that, that in of itself. It was the fact that it got news. It got attention. If it had just sold for $1.4 million, none of us would have heard about it. I don't think. I don't think anyone would have heard, and it wouldn't have been on anybody's radar. But it's because that happened. Something strange. And somebody was probably in the room. They think they're sure somebody was in the room who had the remote that triggered it. And, and, um, but, but that happened. Something happened completely unexpected. Normally what you expect is auction, you know, do I get a million, I got a million, going once, going twice, sold, move on. But something happened totally unexpected and it captured everybody's attention. Now, what I think about so often, the stories that we know from the life of Jesus, really from the, from the scriptures altogether, are because something happens that sometimes is very unexpected. And it, it makes the story is even more powerful to us. In fact, anytime you read stories in the Bible, one of the questions you should ask yourself is, why was, is this story remembered and told? Why is it When you read the Gospels, when you think about Jesus in three years of ministry, must have had thousands of conversations with people that came to ask him questions of faith. But we don't have thousands of conversations. We have a few encounters. We have a few stories here and there. So when I read stories like we're about to, of Jesus and this rich young ruler, what I ask myself is, why was this story retold? Why was this story held on to as a, as a story of, of faith and, and, and something to be passed down generation to generation? And it's because something happened, Well, maybe not quite as startling as a painting getting shredded, but something happened that was unexpected. And so, let's turn to the story. Mark, Chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. This is what we read. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and each said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. All things But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Pray, hear God's blessing on the reading of his word. Friends, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Indeed, we do give you thanks for your word and for your gift to us. Speak to us again through this story. Speak to us through the gospel. Speak to us through the life of Christ. Challenge us in our faith. And move us close to you in obedience. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. I want to spend a few minutes here really focusing in on, besides Jesus, the the central character of this story, which is the rich young ruler. I mean, Peter makes a little bit of an appearance at the end of the verses that we read. Peter kind of chimes in as Peter does. And Peter, if you really kind of spend some time, and that'd be for another sermon, probably gets a little confident in himself. You know, look what we've done, Jesus. That's kind of a Peter moment early in the Gospels. But that's really not who I want to spend a lot of time with. I really want to talk about this rich young ruler, or as he's described often as the rich young ruler. Because he, for us, for those of you that, that maybe have grown up in church, that are familiar with this story, that have heard these stories your whole life, uh, the rich young ruler becomes kind of the, the epitome for us of greed um, the epitome of us, um, kind of a character of, of a caricature of disobedience. He doesn't respond to this invitation Jesus gives. He, he kind of gets painted in a very negative light, and while we can understand that, I mean, there is certainly some truth in that. I think he he doesn't get treated fairly. I think these more there, there's more complexity to the story, even in just a few short verses. Than, than we tend to see, and I think that we need to, to be more fair to this rich young ruler. So before we, we focus on some of the, the, the kind of the lessons, which really are some of the negatives for him of the story, let's, let's look at him, I think, in some of the positives as well, because I think they're there. I think you just have to be willing to kind of dig for them a little bit, but, but talking about this rich young ruler, I think here's one of the things that I find very um, admirable about him, in that this, he appears to be very bold. In fact, even brave, if you will. And you think, well, well why? What's, what's brave? Well, well, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the day to ask Jesus to teach him. That's really what he's doing. He's wanting to come and he's wanting to learn from Jesus. But he comes to Jesus in the middle of the day in front of everybody to seek a word and a wisdom from this, this rabbi. Now, in and of itself, that may not seem particularly brave. You say, well, what's significant about that? But, but remember, this is somebody from what we would call the upper class. He's, he's probably well-educated. He's certainly financially well-off. He is, he's from kind of an a, elite status, if you will. And, and the thing is, this is not the kind of people that generally came openly to Jesus. The, the leaders and the influencers and the people of significance often were the ones that were trying to trip Jesus up but they didn't come to Jesus openly and admit that Jesus had anything to teach them because jesus was uh, he was lower class he he was from he was a poor Galilean carpenter I don't mean a, a lower class in in influence or, or significance but in how people viewed him he wasn't he wasn't well off he wasn't well to do and so as we know, sometimes classes tend to look down on other classes, and he would not have been of esteemed um, position, if you will. And so he comes, this, this, this young man comes, and he doesn't seem to care. And if you want kind of a contrast, think about Nicodemus. If, if you know the story of Nicodemus... In John chapter 3, you can go read that story. But, but Nicodemus is the Pharisee, and he's a leader in the Sanhedrin. And later on, we learn he also is a man of wealth. And he, too, wants to come and learn from Jesus. But remember, when did Nicodemus come to Jesus? At night, yeah, in dark, when nobody would see. He came to Jesus when nobody would be aware he was coming to Jesus. But because he was worried what everybody else would think. Well, this young man doesn't seem to possess any of that. He comes openly to Jesus. He comes, I think, courageously in some ways to Jesus. The other thing he does is he comes humbly to Jesus. He comes humbly to Jesus. Now, now where do I get that from? Well, two things. One, it says he ran to Jesus. Now, again, this is cultural context. We have to place this story into cultural context. Running for a man in Jewish society was undignified. We talked about this uh, months ago when we talked about the parable of the prodigal son, when it says the father ran to, to meet his son and threw his arms around him. You didn't run if you were a Jewish man. You would have to hike up your robe to run. That would expose your lower leg. That was scandalous. You just didn't do that. And so that's not a behavior or a practice that would have been approved of and he did it anyway. He runs to Jesus and then what does he do? He falls on his knees before him. He takes a, um, a, a, a posture of, of a servant, if you will. He falls before him. So, so, so he comes in this posture of, of, of boldness. He comes in this posture of humility. And I think the third thing is he comes sincerely. He comes sincerely before Jesus. It's interesting that he 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 asks this question and he starts with this. He phrases it like this. He says, "Good teacher." He says, "Good teacher." And I've I've read different commentaries and different scholars and some think that that it's a setup, that he's kind of buttering up Jesus. He's ingratiating himself to Jesus. You know, "Good teacher." He's he's kind of trying to win some approval. There's it's a, the story of a of a of a Um, teacher, an elementary school teacher, who um, was doing an exercise with her class, with her young students, and she was having them, um, I I guess, dissect sentences. You remember doing that, where you had to dissect the parts of a sentence, verbs, nouns, just horrible exercise, Um, (laughs) was having them dissect a sentence, and so she called on, on little Sammy, and she said, Sammy, I want you to give me a sentence, make up a sentence, and so Sammy looks at her and says, my teacher is so pretty. And she looked at him and said, Okay, Sammy, what's the object of that sentence? And he said, The object is for me to get an A in English. <laughs> that's ingratiating yourself. That's a, and, and some have said that's what the, this rich young ruler is doing. I don't think so. I really don't think that is what, I think it's sincere. I think his, his posture, his gesture, I think he's coming very, very sincerely because he believed Jesus has something to offer. There's something powerful and attractive about Jesus and what he's teaching and what he's doing. And he believes Jesus can speak this truth in his life. So I think he sincerely wants to know. He wants to know how can he live obediently and faithfully. How can he receive this gift of, of eternal life, good good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life and so Jesus says to him live obediently and that's what he says live obediently he starts to kind of recite the commandments you know don't steal don't commit adultery don't commit murder you know um, don't don't covet what isn't yours honor your mother and father he he kind of lists through these commands these are the things that you need to do and it's interesting the young man's response he looks at Jesus and he says I have done these things since I was a boy. I have been doing these things since com- becoming, you know, since my entry into to faith, if you will. And that's an interesting response. And this is why I think it's so sincere. See, because that could come off as, as self-congratulatory. Well, yeah, Jesus, I got that down. No problem. It could come off as, as prideful. Yeah, I, Yeah, Jesus, I know that. I'm doing that kind of stuff. And, and we certainly know that there were those who came to Jesus, religious leaders, that, that did have that posture. And it, it would infuriate Jesus, those that would come to, to Jesus and would, would come with pride and with arrogance. And, and those religious leaders that created these laws and these rules so that they would seem more holy than everyone else. And Jesus had little patience for that. But this is why I don't think this was the posture of this young man. Because of the very next thing the scripture says, verse 21... It says this, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He looked at this young man and I think what he saw was this humility and this courageousness and this sincerity. This young man wanted truly to hear these words that would help him walk on a path of life. To receive this gift of life which Jesus was offering. He looked at him and... And he loved him. And I think before we get to where this story takes a turn, we need to own these characteristics. Don't just write this young man off as lost at the beginning. He's coming sincerely, humbly, and courageously to Jesus. And Jesus loved him. And this is where the story turns. This is where it, it becomes memorable in, in a way that, that stories like pictures getting shredded become memorable. Something unexpected happens. Because here's what I think is, is true for the rich young ruler that is, that is true for us sometimes. Sometimes we ask questions not so much as because we want an answer that we don't know but we want to be affirmed on what we think we do. Not because we want an answer that we don't know, but because we, we want somebody to affirm us in what we already think that we know. And so he's done these things. And I think what he's looking for is he's he's fishing for a very specific answer. And sometimes we get answers we don't expect. There's a, a story, a, a lighthearted story, of a, a, a man who was traveling across the country. And, and he was a... I don't know if the term's a gemologist. You know, he studied diamonds and precious jewels and things. And... um he happened to be sitting next to a woman who had a huge diamond ring. Just enormous. And he was fascinated by it. And so finally he, he asked her. He just kind of got up the courage and he asked her. He said, you know, I study diamonds and other precious jewels. And he's like, I, I've got to know that is, that's a, a, an enormous diamond you have. What, what can you tell me about that diamond? And You know, he's looking for answers like... Where was it mined, or how was it cut, or how many carats, those kind of things. But, but she looked at him, and she said, oh, this. this. This is the famous Klopman diamond, and it comes with a very terrible curse. He thought, now he was intrigued. He couldn't ask, he couldn't wait. He said, with bated breath, well, what's the curse? And she looked at him and said, Mr. Klopman. Sometimes you get answers you don't expect. Now, in that's lighthearted. Now, this is much more serious. But, but he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think what Jesus saw in this young man is that he misunderstood faith. He misunderstood faith. He understood faith as rules. What do I do? Follow the rules commandments and he was doing those things see it's interesting he was doing all these things yet he was still coming to Jesus why because in doing all those things he still wasn't finding peace now our behavior matters I I don't want to I don't want anything to be misunderstood here I'm not saying the things that that we do don't matter but but it's interesting to me that he says I'm doing these things I'm keeping the commandments yet here he is asking Jesus how do I be sure because there's something that's not connecting with him He's struggling to, to find that peace that, that Jesus offers. And, and he's not the first. The, the story of faith, I think for most of us, if we really reflect and are honest, we've probably had, you've probably had those moments of just searching for that peace, that assurance. That The giants of our faith have had those moments through the scriptures, through the history of the church. Martin Luther the architect of the, of the Reformation, the great teacher and theologian. That was kind of the catalyst of his, of his challenging of the church was because he was doing all of these things that he was being taught he needed to do and he was finding no peace. And he comes to realize that you don't earn salvation. It's a gift. And he starts to focus not on works but on grace. And, and it leads to this great transformation and reformation within the church. As Methodist, John Wesley the founder of the movement of Methodism, same thing. He struggled to find that peace, troubled that he didn't have it when he was on the journey from England to Georgia and the the boat that he was on was facing terrible seas and they thought they might sink and the Moravians were there having a prayer service and John Wesley was freaking out. And he's like, I don't have what they have. They have a peace, I don't have that peace. And he searched for it. It would be later back in England on Aldersgate, Street where he would have that experience of having his heart strangely warmed. When he heard Luther's epistle to the Romans, he, he re- they read Luther's opening, introduction to the epistle to the Romans, and he recognized and he owned, the, yes, God's grace is for me. And he found that peace. That's what this young man's looking for. He's looking for that peace, but he thinks that it's built on the rules. And what Jesus needs him to understand is faith is not built on rules. Faith is built on relationship. Faith is built on a relationship, and what he is lacking is, is the primacy of the relationship with God that he's been invited to, to, to prioritize that. And so, so he looks at him, and he gives him this instruction that came out of nowhere, and he says this. He says, one thing you lack. Basically, you've done everything else perfect, but one thing you lack. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now, friends, if you don't read that and it make, doesn't make you squirm, you need to read it again. And if it doesn't make you wor- re- squirm the second time, read it the third time. Because eventually this should make you uncomfortable because it does me. Because Jesus is challenging him to get let go of the one thing he's holding on to tightly. His comfort, his affluence, his wealth. He's giving him a chance, if you will, to live out the great commandment. And if two chapters after this, Mark 12, Mark shares with us the great commandment. Matthew 22 does. Luke 10 does. If you don't get the point, it's really, really important. But remember that great commandment. They ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. So so Jesus has given him a chance to live that out, to take away that one thing that is coming in between you and God. Get rid of it. Let it go. And give it to your neighbors give it to the least of these give it to the hungry to the poor and then come and follow me let go it's the same kind of invitation he gives James and Peter and John it was different they weren't men of wealth but they were fishermen and it says it's interesting in the gospels says when Jesus called they let go they they gave up their nets and they came and followed him he's giving this young man the same invitation and notice it's the only time in the gospels Jesus invites somebody to follow him that the person doesn't do it because he can't let go because there was one thing in his life that was more important to him than the relationship with God. And it was the comfort of his finances. Let go. That's why Jesus would say that statement that, that you're familiar with, you've heard before, but it's so challenging. He says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man or a rich woman to enter the kingdom of God. And that's an interesting statement. And it's intentional hyperbole. And and scholars have dissected exactly what Jesus meant. You know, there's a there's a gate in Jerusalem, a small gate that you could enter in after hours. And you had to kind of squat down. It wasn't a big gate, it was a small, little gate, and it was called the needle's eye. And a camel could actually pass through it if it got on its knees. I don't know how a camel does that with no bags, could shimmy through. Now, did Jesus mean that? I don't know. I don't know if he meant that. There was familiar sayings like that. There's also talk that the word in Aramaic that camel also means large cord or wire. You know, trying to pass a large cord of wire through the needle. It really doesn't matter. Jesus is making the point. This is really, really hard. This is really hard. If you hold on to things tighter than you treasure your relationship with God, it is really hard to receive the blessings that he longs for. That's, that's why I went all the way through verse 30. Because Jesus says that those who let go of these things that follow me, let go of the relationships, let go of their comforts, let go of the things that they've known, those who follow me receive a blessing a hundredfold. But the problem is this, this young man just couldn't let go. He, he was willing to do. He's willing to take up. I'll pray. I'll worship. I'll go to church more. I'll do those things. But don't ask me to release this thing. And he walks away sad. And the challenge for us is, is what are we holding on to tightly? What are we holding on to so tightly that it becomes more important to us than our relationship with God? Nothing can come between us and a call to discipleship. It, it just, it can't. Because something is going to be our God. And we can only have one. And our God becomes that which we value and treasure most. Jesus says, build up your treasure in heaven But for many of us, me, our struggle is we are really, really like our treasure on earth. And, And that doesn't have to be money. But if most of us are honest, that's what it is. There's a reason Jesus talks a lot about money, more so than anything else. Because it so easily becomes our God. We're willing to let go. I'm not saying, and I'm not telling you to go home and sell everything. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, I hear you. Good thing, right? Good thing. But if Jesus showed up and told you to, could you do it? Could you do it? I mean, that's the question that should challenge us. Are we willing to do with those resources that which God's called us to do? Are we willing, even in our comforts, to make God first? Are we willing to let go? For too many of us, for me, I just hold on too tightly. And this story uncomforts, unsettles me because I wonder if I was the rich young ruler, would it have been any different? I've told the story, I've, I've used the example before, I should say. When I was a kid, I remember watching television one day. I don't even remember what age, but, but it was a show, it was something like uh, um, Omaha of uh, Wild Kingdom. What was it, Omaha of... Um, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. It was one of those kind of shows. And it showed some indigenous peoples of Africa um, catching monkeys and lemmings, I think is what they were actually catching. And and they would would trap these. They would catch these because they could then sell them to zoos and and other exhibits. So they didn't want to harm the monkeys, but they did want to catch them. And and it showed the trap that they would set. I I, I don't know if you remember this or have ever seen this. But what they would do, and you can still find videos on this if you you want to kind of verify the story. But they would go to some of these large mounds, like um, termite mounds. If you've seen termite mounds in Africa, they're, they're enormous. And they would dig out a hole. And sometimes they'd do it in a tree. And sometimes they'd actually use coconuts that are tied to the tree. It's all the same. But basically, you've got to have a small hole. And in the hole, you put some food item that the monkeys really enjoy, bananas or sugar cubes or whatever it is. And then they would lay those same food items all around the hole, and they would go and hide. And, of course, the monkeys would see it, and they would come, and they would eat, and they'd enjoy the bounty. And then they'd realize that in this hole, there's more of it. And so they'd reach their hand in, and they'd grab it. And here's the problem. They can't get their fist out. The hole small enough for their hand to get in, but it is not big enough for their fists to get out. And they won't let go. And they are literally captured simply by a person walking up with a rope and placing it around their neck because they won't let go. Even though their freedom is at stake, even though their blessing is far greater in letting go of this momentary pleasure than to hold on to it, they won't let go. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, let go. Let go. What are you holding? What are you holding? Too tightly. What matters more? What must I do? Brothers and sisters, ask yourself, Lord, what must I let go? Let's pray. Lord, we... uh, we're challenged by your word to us it's not easy Lord help us to to make you our first love to recognize the greatest blessings that we receive will come through faith through following you through discipleship And Lord help us when we need to to let go of those things that get in the way what must we do Lord help us to ask the question but respond in faithfulness to your answer we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. And if you ever think the answer and the cost is too high, remember that the one who spoke those words is the one who let go of his very life so that we would have life. And so as we prepare our hearts to continue to worship and to receive communion, we remember that on the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread, gave thanks to God, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, given for you for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he gave thanks to God and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and drink all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Friends, let us pray. Gracious Lord, help us to remember the gift that you've given, that you were willing to let go of your life, that we would have life. And so as we receive this bread and juice, make it be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we would serve you faithfully as a people who have been redeemed by your blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until the day comes that you come in final victory and we feast at your heavenly banquet. Lord, we give you all praise. We give you all glory now and forever in Christ's holy name. Amen. I want to invite now our communion servers to come and to take their place at each of our our stations. As I remind you that uh, as we receive this morning, there's two stations in the front, two in the back for you as you're led to come and receive the bread and to dip it into the juice and thereby receive the body and blood of Christ. The altar is open for prayer. The baskets around the room are for prayer cards or offering. And then lastly, if you are unable to come forward, just let someone know we will bring communion to you. But friends, this is Christ's table. He has made it ready. As you are led, you're invited